Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, I, um, I'm excited to be back. For some of you you don't know, I, I preached a camp meeting this past week, and um, it was exciting, it was fun, God moved, God changed lives, and then you come home, and it's time to rest a little bit, right? But let me just say, I would, I would not, I would, I'd rather not be anywhere else. I, I love Sunday morning, and while I am a little bit tired, I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to be in the house of the Lord, and I'm excited to continue this series because I don't know about you, and I know I've spoken to many of you, so I do know about some of you, but it's been really powerful to me to revisit some of the things that we believe. This series, This We Believe, has highlighted many of the the doctrinal things, many of the the things, the theological uh, understandings that we have of Scripture. We've looked at history, we've looked at Scripture, we've looked at the different creeds, we've also examined and explored uh, the Wesleyan Church discipline as well in the Articles of Religion. And it's interesting to me to think about the reality that though there are things that are so fundamental to what we believe, sometimes they get put on, on a back burner, sometimes they get forgotten, sometimes they're, they're maybe too long or feel abstract, and so we, we forget or we don't necessarily know exactly how to live those things out. My heart is, my prayer is that as we revisit, or maybe if you learn about these for the first time, that this will be a time where you can be transformed, you can be changed, you can be uh, refreshed in these concepts that God's brought us. Several years ago, I was uh, serving as, a, as an assistant and youth pastor at um, a church in Circleville, Ohio. And the first couple of years that I got there, we attempted to do some specific events where we would travel a little bit. Um, we, we never um, would go too far, so to speak, usually within a couple of hours. And specifically, I remember th- this event um, almost by the, the detail because my staff, my youth staff and I sat down and we tried to plan out exactly what it would look like, exactly what was going to take place in every single uh, moment of, of the entire trip. The, the event was called uh, Taste of Cincinnati and it wasn't necessarily the one that they put on. It was our own little Taste of Cincinnati. What we wanted to do was take the students to Cincinnati and, and to experience kind of in like a, a caravan type thing. We go from one activity to the next, experience a lot of the things that Cincinnati was known for. And most of those things were centered around food or snacks, ice cream, that kind of thing. But, but there were also some other activities, ice skating and some other stuff because uh, it was winter time that we wanted to do. And as we planned out the event, the first thing that we planned was when we, were gonna, when we were going to arrive with our church vans and where we were going to park. And so I did some research. I'd been to Cincinnati several times, but I'd never done exactly what we were planning on doing. And I did some research on where we were going to go and what the closest parking lot was going to be. And let me just say, all the plans were perfect, but the best laid plans, right? And you know where I'm going. First of all, we we left a little bit later than I wanted to, waiting for some students to get there, which is a a typical thing. When we finally get to Cincinnati, we're about 45 minutes, a half hour later than we wanted to be there. And when we finally get there, we get to the parking lot that I wanted to park in, and it is full. And then the next parking lot, and the next parking lot, and the next parking lot, and the area that we're in had several parking lots, but they also, uh, there were other people that had the same idea, like they wanted to be in Cincinnati that day. And apparently... 
they wanted to park as well. They'd brought their cars. Well, we drove around trying to find a place that we could park, and eventually uh, I, I decided, okay, it's getting to a certain point where the first activity is going to take place, and it was a timed activity. And so I talked to one of my youth staff, and I said, okay, how about uh, we take the students, and we will um, we'll, we'll start this activity, and I'll, you guys take the students, and I'll park the van by myself. And there was actually two vehicles, so it would have been myself and the person behind us. And the volunteer said, how about I park? You know where we're going. You take the students. You go. I said, oh, that's fine. No problem. Whatever you'd like to do. And so uh, we pulled over. All the kids get out. We go to this certain place. The activity's fun. Uh, eventually, uh, the, the volunteer catches up to us, and we go throughout the day. And let me just say, most of the things went according to plan throughout the day. And it gets to a certain point where it's getting dark and we find ourselves in this place where there's a skating rink and there's some other things that we had planned. We're kind of going through these motions and I'm starting to look at my watch and it's like, okay, we, we, we got to get going, right? It's, it's time, to, um, time to go. And so I talk to my youth volunteer, I get the keys back, say, I'm going to grab the van, where did you park? And he kind of puzzled, looks around and says, well, which way did we come in? I know it was in a building. It was one of those where you drive below the building and you park. And immediately I kind of get concerned because it's past business hours at this point. And most of the garages have that gate that comes down and says, hey, your car's here for the night if you don't come get it. And so I'm looking around at the different buildings, and I'm literally with my youth volunteer walking, kind of trying to backtrack the entire day. Okay, we went here, and then we went there, and we walked here, and we walked there. And finally, we get to this building after three or four tries, and we ask the person in the lobby, hey, we think we parked our van in your building. Can we go look? And the person lets us in. We walk down there. We see our van and nice enough as he was, he let us out of there. And after about a 45-minute uh, detour of our plans, we're able to drive back, which, let me just say, the other person found, the other van, instead of parking in this garage, found a nice lot that was close by, and they were already in their warm car, and those kids were having a great time. The rest of the kids are standing there, shivering, ready to get in the van. They finally get in, and I asked the volunteer before we leave, did you even write down where we were. And he said, no, I have a photographic memory. <laughs> and I took a picture in my mind of where the van was sitting in the garage, which was helpful once we found the garage, but not before. Something so fundamental as where you parked your vehicle, something so fundamental as how you start your day, how you start the trip, how you do everything, is, is I mean, something that, that in many cases you would never forget you would never leave by the side. And the sad thing is, if we look at it spiritually, sometimes there are fundamental things in our lives, fundamental things, especially spiritually speaking, that we might forget. Today's sermon, as we kind of walk through this series, points at two specific things. One is personal choice or free will, and the second one is the atonement. And these two things are closely linked. These two things are important enough, should be thought of and looked at and explored and examined in the same sentence. But the core, the understanding is this. Sometimes we live as if these two things, free will and the atonement, don't exist. In fact, sometimes we forget about them entirely. 
And I will tell you that doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It happens as we park our vehicle, so to speak. We park our truth and then we go about our day. We go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, only to find ourselves in a place at the end where it's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, what? Where's my truth? What do I believe? Where am I at? And oftentimes that might even come as a result of somebody asking the question, what do you believe? I know you go to that church. I see you reading your Bible from time to time. I saw that you have a graphic t-shirt that says uh, a Bible verse on it. So you must be a Christian. What do you believe? Today I want to read two specific statements from the Articles of Religion from the Wesleyan Discipline. The first one's paragraph 224. This is personal choice or free will, and I think it'll be on the screen as well. You can read along with me. Yep. We believe that humanity's creation in the image of God included ability to choose between right and wrong. The ability to choose between right and wrong. God has granted us the gift to have the choice to either choose Him or not to choose Him. We're not mindless robots, we're not pre-programmed, but God has granted us with this ability. We're created that way. Thus, individuals were made morally responsible for their choices. In essence, the choices that we make here on earth will have an impact in our and those around us as eternal uh, destination of their soul. But since the fall of Adam, so God created us a certain way. Two chapters later, Adam and Eve, uh, they bring sin into the world. But since the fall of Adam, people are unable in their own strength to do the right. So while we are sinners, we've chosen to sin or we've been born into sin, we don't have the ability, we don't have the strength to be able to jump out of it on our own. And so here within this concept of free will is another element, another wrinkle, another layer. This is due to original sin, which is not simply the following of Adam's example, but rather the corruption of the nature of each mortal and is reproduced naturally in Adam's descendants, which would include all of us. Because of it, humans are very far gone from original righteousness and by nature are continually inclined to evil, a bend towards doing wrong. They cannot of themselves even call upon God or exercise faith for salvation. But through Jesus Christ, the pervenient grace of God makes possible what humans in self-effort cannot do. And so backing up for just a moment, several weeks ago, when we walked through the Trinity, we talked about Jesus' sacrifice and what he's done and what we're going to talk about in just a moment with the atonement. But at the same time, this pervenient grace, something that comes, grace that comes before the grace of salvation, grace that God gives us to be able to even respond to him. And that's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the last line, it is bestowed freely upon, now get this word, it's important, all, enabling all who will who too will turn and be saved. And so right here we see that this is for all of us. It's not reserved for you, it's not reserved for me, it's not reserved for a certain number of people or certain elect. Instead, it is for all people. Like it, the atonement. In paragraph 226, it says this, We believe that Christ's offering of himself once and for all through his suffering and and meritorious death, sorry about that, on the cross provides the perfect redemption and atonement for the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. There is no, you know, uh, hold on, pause. I just want to say this. There is no sacrifice that would be sufficient outside of a perfect sacrifice of a perfect God. Not even a created sacrifice will be sufficient. 
There's no other ground of salvation from sin but that alone. This atonement is sufficient for every individual of Adam's race. It is unconditionally effective in the salvation of those mentally incompetent from birth, of those converted persons who have become mentally incompetent, and of children under the age of accountability. But it is effective for the salvation of those who reach the age of accountability only when they repent and experience the faith in Christ. And so here we see that Christ's atonement is for all people. And at the same time, Christ's grace or God's grace for those who may not have the mental capability of full understanding, that grace is sufficient for those who may not be of age or those who may not have the ability to be able to understand. Wesleyan Discipline, 2016, Articles of Religion. And now sometimes in the Arminian practice, when we talk about, especially when we talk about free will and when we talk about the atonement and these specific concepts, there is a tendency to, to, um, to either step away from or possibly sugarcoat or not even talk about some of the, the, the thoughts, the maybe thought of proposing or uh, opposing thoughts in the book of Romans. And so what I want to do today is I want to read specifically from the book of Romans. I want to explore the book of Romans because I believe... And hopefully um, you will understand or we can understand together what it, what it means to truly experience God afresh and anew. What it means for us to both have the ability to make the decision and for God to be fully sovereign in our lives. The author of Romans, Paul, is, uh, is one who uh, is now using his, his Roman name. Uh, he was Saul, and now he's Paul after his conversion. He's traveling around Rome. He's writing letters to the different churches in which he's planted and the ones that in which he's engaged with. And as he writes these letters, he's, uh, he's writing specifically to the church in Rome after a specific instance took place. So for a time... The Jews that believed in Jesus were expelled from Rome. They were not allowed to live there. And naturally, the church that, that continued to thrive in that area, made up mostly of Gentiles, would have been uh, a reflection of the methods and the ways and the styles to which the Gentiles understood the good news. And so at this time, after about a five-year uh, exodus, after the Jewish people were, were Jewish Christians were able to come back and they returned, they noticed there was a lack of tradition. There was a lack of resemblance of what they left and what they understood. And naturally what took place is there was an overall divide within the church. They didn't fully understand it. They didn't fully know what was taking place there, but there was a divide between those who had returned and those who had been there. They all believed in the same Jesus. They all believed in the atonement. They all understood that, but there was a divide in how it all took place. And so Paul wrote this specific letter for two things. One, he wanted to unify the people. He wanted to bring them together. He wanted to share a clear example, a clear and concise knowledge of what the gospel means, what Christ did. And at the same time, he was staging the grounds for this calling that he had on his life to travel and plant more churches, and he wanted to set up a foundation there. The Romans in Paul's day, uh, the Roman in Paul's uh, day is that this, this fullest expression of the gospel is an opportunity for those to hear and to, be highlight, to hear the highlighted understanding of uh, Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. The Romans uh, book itself, or the book of Romans itself, is divided into four portions, and the one that I want to look at today specifically is in the second one. We're going to look at chapter 6. If you've got your scripture with you, if you want to turn there on your smart device, we're going to look at 6, primarily uh, the, the, this passage uh, 
situated itself within this uh, creating a new humanity concept, or this idea that we can be made new, this idea that we can be transformed, we can be new creations in Christ. We don't have to live in bondage, we don't have to live in sin. In fact, in my um, English translation, the NIV, this subheading is dead to sin, alive in Christ. And those things are on two opposite sides of the spectrum. You can't both be dead, or you, you have to be both. You, you can't be alive in sin and alive in Christ. You can't have both things. Instead, you must be dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so what I want to do is walk through this specific passage as Paul writes it. Understanding that in context, the original uh, recipients of this letter would have understood it in their own cultural historical way. But for us, there is a universal principle. There are universal principles that we can pull, that we can draw, that we can understand. Starting in verse 1, it says this, What shall we say then? In response to understanding the, the, the principles before death through Adam and life, and life through Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that, the grace may, so that grace may be increased? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into, Jesus, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5 reads like this, For if we were united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now some of you might have some trouble today because you notice that the, the note guide on the back just says notes and there's all this space here. I am going to put some notes on the screen, and you're welcome to, to jot those down. We'll try to give you ample time for that. At the same time, you feel free to write down whatever else you'd like to write, whatever the Spirit's placed on your heart. But I'll start here. The first point is this. We're looking at this specific verse to, or these specific verses to start with. Spiritual life requires the exercise of free will. Spiritual life, and life being the opposite of death, life in Christ, spiritual life in our Savior requires the exercise of free will. It wouldn't be life should we have received it without having the decision or the choice on our own. The first song that we sang today, Glorious Day. I don't know if you, if you pay attention to those words, but man, they are powerful. And I'm going to read uh, just a, a few lyrics here. I wrote these down. I was buried beneath my shame. Who would carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing but not alive, meaning I was living but I, wasn't, I didn't experience. I was, my flesh was living but my spirit was not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb Till I met you. These two specific verses to start this song highlight the fact that before we know Jesus, we are dead. Spiritually speaking, before we know Jesus, we are dead. And then it goes on the next, the very next verse. It says or the very next part of that verse. It says, "You called my name." So right here, we're talking about provenient grace, right? You called my name. The Holy Spirit spoke to you, spoke to each one as you as you received Jesus. You know this that the Spirit spoke to you, gave the opportunity, and then the choice. Then I ran out of that grave. 
Now, this can seem really difficult to understand. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not in a grave. God was, uh, Jesus was the one that was put in the tomb. He's the one that came out. But let me just say, when we put this into context, all of us, spiritually speaking, are dead before we respond to Jesus. And we have to make the decision to leave that tomb, to leave that grave, based upon the power and the sacrifice and the atonement that Jesus did for us. Out of the darkness... Into your glorious day, you called my name and I ran out of the grave, out of the darkness, into your glorious day. Can I just say, today could be the glorious day for somebody in here, somebody join online. In some fashion, in some way, if the Spirit is speaking and saying to you, look, you don't, I, I don't know you. You haven't responded. You're still living in that place of shame, in that place of failure, in that place of darkness. I, I don't know you. I want to know you. If, that, if that's the feeling, if that's the, the response, if that's how you believe today, if that's what you know about yourself today, deep down, this could be your glorious day. This could be the day where you say, God, I, I want to know you. I want to make you Lord and Savior of my life. I want to exercise this gift you've given me of free will, and I want to follow you. The baptism experience, maybe as an example, the baptism experience is an awesome metaphoric way of showing this principle, right? Think about this for just a minute. The baptism experience for water baptism, which is what what we practice here, and let me just do a quick commercial just so you know. Uh, How many of you have been enjoying the family dinners? Anybody? that we've done over the last couple of months. Okay, we, we plan on doing one next month. There's a good chance, if we can get all the details together, that we're going to do a baptism service at the family dinner next month in August. So if you would like to be baptized, we'd love to have you join, but we've already got a bunch of students uh, that, uh, from, from youth camp that have responded and would like to be baptized. So we're excited about that. So put that on your calendar, third Sunday of, of August. But that being said, the baptism experience is is an opportunity for us to be baptized into the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the thing that takes place that is so awesome, so amazing uh, in, in, in its imagery is you get taken back into the water, right? You go back into the water. And then you come back out again. And that action in and of itself is a reflection of the, of the reality that we die with Christ, right? We go down into the grave and then we come back out of it. Right? Which is exactly what Jesus had to do through the atonement for us. And so we are once again saying, God, I want to be baptized in your family. And I'm going to practice the same thing you practice. My own free will is to die and come back in you. Because in essence, we're already dead, right? We're dead, but we have to die to sin. We have to get rid of the sin in our lives by giving it to God. We have to make that choice, make that decision. This free will is one that assumes the position and the action of death. Moving on to the passage in verse 6, it says, For we know that our old self has crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done, after, uh, done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die, let me just read that again. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. I'm going to pause. This isn't in my notes, but I just want to say this. I, I was actually listening to, a, to one of the other speakers this past week, and the reality is we don't have to live in sin. Sometimes we think sin is like a prerequisite in life, like it's just always going to be there. It's something we have to do. That's not what Christian perfection says. Christian perfection says we direct our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength, everything we are towards God. And in the process, sin loses its hold on us. 
So when you give your heart to Jesus, you're not a slave to sin anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't champion you. It doesn't rule you. Instead, sin becomes something that's subservient. It's gone. It's, it's out of your life. Picking back up in verse 8, it says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also, we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. What an awesome God we serve. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, will, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin no for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now this would have been, for some, it would have been scandalous for, for them to read this, to read about the fact that, oh, the law isn't necessarily our master, but instead this grace is. It's this transition for, for some that they were following these rules, a set of rules and being obedient and, and righteous, which was, was great. But, but when Jesus came, he brought forth a new day and a new understanding as he provided a, a channel for all to be able to experience this, this, this grace and, this, and mercy in essence in the other way. And, and so the, the concept is, is transitioning from rules to relationship. We find that there's a required action on the part of humanity, which is free will, but also that the actual work can only be done through the power of God's grace, the atonement. If you're taking down notes from the screen, the second one is this, spiritual life, life in Christ is made possible through God's grace. And this might be one of the hardest things for believers to understand, especially those that, that that grew, let's face it, that grew up in this country where we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need to earn our keep. We need to do the things that we need to do to earn our way. Because in essence, in essence, most of us believe we should work. And you, we should work. But when it comes to our faith, there's no way to work your way into heaven. There's no way to work your way into God's good graces. Instead, the grace has already been given. Now, we do work. There is Christian service, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But that Christian service is an outpouring of the love that we've been given, not a means or an attempt to try to earn God's love and affection. A person whose mind is on the flesh rather than on the spirit is one who, in, in every essence, in every way, is only seeing the here and now. We are created spiritual beings. We are created with a soul that lives within a mortal body. And because our soul is eternal, our soul was created first, therefore that is what is most important. That is what, that is, what is going to go beyond this world. And so we can understand ourselves in a way where it's spirit first and flesh is simply second. The, the problem is the default mode for the world is to be hostile to God. Because we're born into sin. I'm going to tell you, most of the time, a default mode, no matter what it might be, whether it's a new gadget that you buy or whether it's a, a, a car or what, whatever it might be, the default mode is set when you get it, right? I'm not much of a gamer, and I might embarrass myself talking about video games now, but I'm going to for just a moment. When I was younger, I used to play about three different games. It's about all I had, actually. I used to play about three different games. And one specific game, it was a football game, 
I would spend half of the time, my mom would say, okay, you can play for 10 minutes. I would spend half of the time getting all the default modes in the order to which I wanted them to be. I want the volume at this level. I want the, the, uh, the, the difficulty at this level. I want all the different things in the order that I want. I spend half the time getting the default mode where I need to be, right? Now I think you just kind of turn it on. You set the default and it's good forever. This you had to do every single time. And sadly, I think what takes place sometimes in life is we get into this mode where, we're okay, we're in this default to start with. We know that. And we think, okay, I need to continue to reset the default. I need to do this again. I need to do this again. I need to do this again. When in essence, God is saying, okay, I'll reset. You're in this default mode. I'll reset it if you just give it to me. If you just give it to me, it's not about your work. It's not about what you can do. Yes, I understand the default that you are in now, not the original creation, how I created you perfect. I understand where you're at now, but I will do a new, a good, a fresh work in you. Verse 15 picks up like this. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance." You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Some might read this and say, well, it sounds like you kind of just switched one master for another, right? You were a slave to to, uh, some other kind of type of sin or your own agenda, and now you basically said, okay, now I'm just going to be a slave to to God. Let me just tell you, there is... um, there's a very wrong understanding, a wrong perspective when it comes to submission to God, if that's how we believe. Verse 17, I'll back up, says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey your heart, the pattern of teaching that you now claim as your allegiance. This is the embodiment of holiness as you submit yourself to righteousness. You see, the Romans, uh, Christians at that time, before their conversion and reconciliation, these believers were literally slaves to sin. And nothing has changed. In fact, that's how it is today. Before we come to Christ, we're slaves to sin. We live in bondage. And then verse 18, pick back up there. It says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Well, now you read that, you say, well, I'm not a slave to sin anymore, but what about this new slave? I have to be a slave to righteousness. And it's not about what we necessarily are a slave to or what we have to do, but what we ought to do. Slavery to sin is in contrast to slavery to righteousness because now there's this union to Christ. Now there's this freedom in Christ. You're not in bondage. You're not in cuffs. You're not, you're not in some prison somewhere. Instead, you're, you're free to live. You're free to be the person that God created you to be. You're free to live in a way where you can honor Him and you can, you can show and express and receive unconditional love. And the point is this, before conversion and reconciliation, believers are essentially sinners. They're slaves. Most of us, if you're a believer in the room, you know this, you, you've experienced it. That's, that's your heart song, that's your testimony. Before you came to Christ, you were a slave to something else, to someone else. Something else sat on the throne of your heart and now you are changed, you are new. 
If you're in here now and maybe you're a pre-Christian, you don't know Jesus, the, the things that are, that are clawing at you, the things that are always trying to, to, trying to tear you down, the things that, that you are serving, so to speak, that's your master. And you know, we know, there's no fulfillment in that. This new master can provide something that the old one can't. Life. Peace. This past week as I was preaching, I, I was excited to see that, that many uh, students and leaders and, and, and even adults, that they responded. And I, I think one of the, the neat things about it is, is not necessarily all the time do you get to see uh, the fruit. You don't always get to see what God has done. You don't always get that visible picture because what happens spiritually isn't necessarily something that's always outwardly done. But this specific time, I, I was watching uh, midway through uh, one of the, the, uh, the altar calls, the altar experiences and a student went up, actually, he was a, a college student, he, he was a counselor, but his student went up and he knelt down at the altar in response to the word, response to the message. And I, I saw him go up, and as he walked up, his posture was, he was hunched over, he was discouraged, he was just, he was walking with a lot, it seemed like with a lot of guilt and with a lot of frustration and discouragement. And he knelt down at the altar and he prayed, and someone else came up and prayed with him. And when he got up, you could see in his posture, as his shoulders went back, and he walked more with confidence and understanding that he was walking in the light. He was walking new. He was made new in a real and a fresh way. And we don't always really see that physically, but man, that is what happens. God takes the burdens that we unnecessarily carry. He takes the things that used to be our master. He abolishes those things. He said, hey, let me show you. Let me bring you into the light. Let me carry this for you because I love you. We talk about free choice. We talk about the, the decisions that we have. We have the decision to make that, but we do so in the reality and the fact that we don't do it by earning it. We don't do it by the, the things that we can pay for. We do so because of the reality that Jesus came and created this thing called the atonement. Engaged in this thing called the atonement. Verse 19, it says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you are used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing ever wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Meaning once you come to Christ, you don't just stop. You know, the Olympics are going on right now. It'd be really funny to see one of the swimmers that's about to swim 100 meters just jump in the pool like, that was a really good dive, I'm done. No, you keep swimming, right? You keep, that, that's what the, the, the faith is about. You continue to go and, and, and learn more about him and grow in your relationship. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you, you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the fundamental assumption is believers are slaves, be, are slaves before they come to Christ. That's, that's it. But we don't have to be that. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live in a place of discouragement and despair and depression. You may think that you're free before you come to Christ, free to do whatever you want, free to live however you want to, and if you come to Christ, you can take away all your fun. Let me just tell you, it's quite the opposite. And Satan, the great deceiver, is the one who brings forth this, this, this lack of understanding of what it means to truly live in freedom. 
It's not free to be able to make your own choices and, and to, to discourage others and to live in a way that, that, that's not honoring to God. It's freeing to say, God, I give it all to you. I want to know you in a real way. I understand, I know, I, re- I, I come to the reality that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I want you to be both Lord and Savior of my life. So how, how should we talk about our will, our desire, our ability to honor God with our lives. Christ frees us through the grace and conviction of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he brings forth through the God, our, in the Godhead, our God, God the Holy Spirit, brings forth pervenient grace or grace before grace so that the grace of Jesus can be accepted. But here's the deal. Many cases we think, okay, when I get to this certain point or when this thing happens or at this certain date, I'll be all set, everything will be good to go. But in essence, the reality is this. Jesus already died on the cross. Jesus already beat death. Jesus already has done the work that needs to be done. And so it's, it's less about free will and more about freed will. Meaning it's taken place. We've already been granted free will and the action has already happened. Going back to Romans 6.22, this notion of freed will is, is key. It's, 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 it's one of the most important things that we can understand. We came into the world a slave, but through Christ you can be free from sin and receive that. Every person comes into life a slave. We get free from receiving Jesus. Well, what is this atonement that requires a response of free will? The atonement, the term itself, it refers to the belief that Jesus dying on the cross resolved the problems between human and God. The problems that, 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 that are there they, they are there, and we can do nothing about them. We cannot earn them. We cannot pay enough. You know, if I were to take two glasses of water, a, a clean, perfect glass and a dirty glass of water, and I poured any amount of dirty water into that clean glass, you cannot dilute it enough to eliminate the dirty water. So it doesn't matter how good or how bad the world might see you or how you might define yourself or how you might compare yourself to other people and quote their sin. If there is any sin, which we all have because we we're born into sin nature, there is a need for Jesus. And that is a debt that we cannot pay. That's why it's an atonement. I read a story about a small boy that um, he was consistently coming in late for dinner. Every single day, he would, he, the bell would ring, and he'd be out playing, he'd be out doing something, he'd come in late for dinner every single day. And eventually, his parents, they told him, if you don't come in on time, you're not eating dinner. You won't have anything. You can't have anything. You do it one more time, and you go to bed with no dinner. And so the day came, the next day came, and dinner time rolled around, and the bell rang, and his mom and dad said, okay, it's time for dinner, come on in. And he comes into the, into the kitchen, he's later than he's ever been. I don't know if he was trying to challenge it, or if he just lost track of time, or he wanted to do that one last thing, or catch that one last frog, or whatever he was doing out there in the yard. He finally comes in, and he sits down at the table in his place to an empty plate. And as he sat at the empty plate and he looked down, he couldn't help but realize that he had a debt that he couldn't pay. There was nothing he was going to be able to do to go back on it. And as his dad looked at him, he looked at him in the face. He saw the anguish that he was in. He saw the darkness. He saw the the frustration. He saw the reality that his son could do nothing to get through this. He took his plate 
and he gave it to his son. And he gave him this nourishing meal so that his son might be able to grow and live. Let me just tell you, we're all sitting in front of an empty plate. When we're born, we live before we know Jesus. But God has a, a nourishing bounty that he wants to give each of you. And as I said in a previous sermon, it, you know what? If you leave hungry, it's your own fault. Because God wants to fill you. He wants to nourish you. He wants to do so so much that he sent his own son. He came into this world of darkness and, and poison ivy and, and gossip and all the things that we have to deal with only to be sacrificed on a cross. I don't know how you came in today. I don't know if you, 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 you come and, and this is a refresher for you. Hopefully it is. Hopefully you're fine in the van keys. You know where you parked. You're good to go. And now if someone asks or, or it's even a reminder of how to live your life, maybe that's you. Maybe you came in today and you don't necessarily have it all figured out. You're just trying to kind of walk through this. And this is kind of a, a help. I would encourage you to continue to read Romans and continue to explore and examine exactly what Paul is talking about here. Read this passage again this week, once a day this week. Perhaps you came in today and you don't know Jesus at all. This is like the first time, or maybe you, you've, you've heard the message a couple of times. You've, you've, you've heard it on, uh, from a friend, and they invited you to come. Let me just say, no matter where you're at today, no matter what you're doing, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is for you. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. I want to close this, this, this service with, with a prayer. And as I do... If you're in here right now and you have not experienced, you're joining online and you've not experienced Jesus fresh and anew, a real way, if you've not been changed, transformed, and you want to today, you can. In fact, I'm going to pray and there's nothing magical about the words. Instead, it's just a heart song. And if you want to pray alongside either outwardly or to yourself, you can do so. But I will, I will say this. If you're going to pray and accept Jesus today, accept this gift today, I want to talk to you after the service. And I won't run away, I'll stay right here, but I want to talk to you today because I want to talk through this with you because what's going to happen is you're going to make a decision for Jesus and Satan's going to say, no, I don't want that to happen, and he's going to attack you. And so don't leave today, especially if you make a choice without letting somebody else know. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the gift that we have of free will, and we thank you what's more for the gift that we have of your atonement. And God, as we come to this place and we're in this room or we're joining online and we, we gather together in worship, we gather together with the understanding that you are here and that you move and that you change, God, I pray that that would not be lost on us. I pray first for those that know you, that understand you, that, that have followed you, that, that are, are, are in every way attempting to grow in their relationship with you, God, that you would continue to blossom those relationships, that you would continue to bring forth a sense of, of newness every single day. God, I pray for those that might be struggling today, that, that know you or that have made decisions in the past but don't fully, uh, haven't fully lived that out or, or don't fully understand or maybe have forgotten their first love. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to their hearts. Help them, God, in these moments. And then, God, I pray for those that might not know you, that have not experienced your salvation, that have not experienced or taken hold of the atonement that you've granted. May you speak to them, allow them to understand that it's about an understanding of their free will to say yes to you. You stand there, you stand at the door and knock. May they open the door. You don't barge in, you don't kick the door in, God. Instead, 
you stand and knock, and may they open and receive you. If that's you today, I'm going to pray this prayer. I want you to pray alongside me. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I am a slave to sin. As a descendant of Adam, the first man, the one who sinned, God, I know that I'm born into a sin nature. God, I pray, I ask for your forgiveness for my sins. At the same time, God, I pray that you would be the Lord and Savior of my life. I accept your atonement. I accept your grace because of your grace. God, I pray that you would be my Savior. At the same time, Father, I pray that you would lead me as my Lord, that you would be the one who grants me direction and life. God, I pray that you would, you would walk with me and that I could walk with you all the days of my life. Father, we thank you for the reality that that is possible, that we can pray that prayer and that we can know you in a greater way. God, I pray that you would go with each one this week as we leave this place. May we be on fire for you. May we, may we be safe. And I, I pray for safety, but God, I pray that we would be dangerous, that we would be dangerous for you and your kingdom as we build up your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. One time John, uh, Martin Luther, excuse me, was sitting down for family devotions and he read the story about Abraham offering Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. And his wife Katie literally said, and I quote, I do not believe it. God would not have treated or made him treat his son like that. And Luther's response was, he did. And he did it for you. Go this week knowing that we serve a loving God who has created a path through his atonement. And in your free will, respond lovingly. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.